I don't know if you can tell, if you look at uh, the insert in your program, I don't know if you can tell what that image is. I've got uh, a little bit better version of it here. It's a pair of glasses, and the glasses have three lenses or several lenses that are all, they're supposed to be different colors. And that's not in color, so you can't actually see that. But the lenses are all different colors. And, you know, what I wanted to talk about this morning is um, I've become aware, and this is over the last 10 or 12 years, I've become aware that as I view life, as I view what I think is reality, as I view other people, and as I view God, um, I've actually got a lot of lenses that uh, that influence the way I see things, okay? These lenses, uh, and we'll talk about where they come from and what they are, but these lenses actually, you know, are filters. You know, we've talked about worldview here, you know, and the fact that I see the world through my own specific worldview. These lenses, and they come from a variety of sources, influence what I perceive to be uh, reality, what I perceive in other people to be truth, what I perceive in life to be truth, and eventually what I perceive in God to be truth or his nature. Um, and it's really, they're just lenses that uh, have developed in me over time and have become um, kind of a, a shading of how I see life and how I see truth. I'll give you an example, and this is kind of a, a low level, a benign, almost benign example, but I'm an introvert. Uh, I see life through the eyes of an introvert. I experience life through the experience of an introvert. Sometimes it's like a lens or a shading uh, that, that just causes me to view others uh, and their behavior through that lens. Uh, sometimes it's a voice from deep within. But, um, but whatever it is, this is the way I come at life. And for those of you, uh, I think most of us have, have talked about introvert and extrovert and kind of what the differences are. But it's real simple. An introvert refreshes and recharges their emotional battery in silence at home, in the quiet, with a book. An extrovert recharges their emotional battery. Kind of like John. Where did John go? Kind of like John, you know, i got to be in front. I've got to be talking. I've got to be the center of attention a little bit. You know, but it's, it's that way that an extrovert... Yeah, there we go. I've got to be seen. If I'm not seen, you know, I'm depleting my battery. For me, if I'm seen, my battery is depleting. Okay? This is just a lens that I see and judge life by. And here's the deal. Here's where it uh, becomes spiritual in nature, because at this point, you may not see the spirituality of this. It becomes spiritual in that if I'm in a charitable mood and I see the extrovert needing to be the center of attention and drawing attention to themselves, in a charitable mood, I, I laugh and I play along and I say, oh, that's great. Aren't they funny? That's so cute. You know? In an uncharitable mood, it is, my gosh, they are so needy. Why do they need so much attention? Why can't they sit down and be quiet? Why do they have to, you know, impact everybody else's results, you know, by trying to be the center of attention? And 
There's nothing spiritual about that. That's just my reality, my way of experiencing life. What's right for me is the introvert nature. But if I'm not careful, if I don't realize the impact, the effect that that has on me, then I can get judgmental. I can see others through that lens, through that light, pass judgment on their behavior. I can even begin to have an opinion about God's nature based on what's real or right for me. So, um, you know, these things limit our ability to connect. They limit our ability to relationship. Um, if I'm not aware of them, if I don't see them for what they are, if I don't recognize uh, where they came from and how they, I don't know, exhibited control on my life, then uh, I'm somewhat at their mercy. I'm following them around like a little puppy dog, experiencing life in that way and thinking it's truth, thinking it's reality. So I want to talk about... Um, and. I would tell you, I think there are, we have as many different lenses to try and get out of the way of our vision as we can imagine. But I want to talk about three different areas this morning um, that I feel like are, are some of the, the most apparent and the easiest to see. So it kind of gives us a place to, uh, to start with this and to, uh, to, to see what I'm talking about. The first one is our genetic predisposition. You know, I'm born with a set of genetic markers, uh, qualifiers. Being an introvert is one, as I understand it. Uh, You know, I am born in a certain way with a certain set of genetic predispositions, uh, a certain personality type that is further developed as I go through childhood, but part of it is already in place when I'm born. Uh, So I start with that, and that's my basic personality type. Uh, introvert is being is part of that. You know, the second uh, the second one is the voices of childhood. Uh, in my pre-rational years, um, you know, ages one through six or seven, before I become self-aware, all the voices of authority, all the voices of my parents, all the uh, direction that I was given, the uh, uh, rules for life that I was given from parents, from authority figures, from teachers, uh, from church, uh, from anyone, any adult that had an impact or an influence on me in the first six years of life, uh, those become voices that, uh, that at this point are so deep within me and coming from so deep within me that they begin to sound like the voice of God. They begin to sound like uh, true reality or truth, uh, when in, in reality all they are is the voice of my parents saying, don't touch that, it's hot. Uh, you know, so uh, years one through six, I, I get a lot of training, I get a lot of voice of authority, I get a lot of indicators on what is true, what's right, how to do life, how to not do life, and at this point, those are coming from deep within the well of my reality to the point that they sound like the voice of God or the voice of conscience or something other than that. The third one is our woundings and our successes. You know, as we go through life, uh, it's inevitable that, uh, that we get hurt. It's inevitable that, uh, that we experience pain. And with every wounding that I get, I form new opinions about life. I form new opinions about relationship. I form new opinions about others. I 
you know, I start to develop boundaries and, uh, and I start to develop ways of dealing with people based on the woundings and successes uh, that I have as I experience life. So the first one, genetic predispositions, that's something that I'm born with. The second one is the first six years of life uh, and the voices that, that guide me through that and teach and train me through that. And then the third one is all of life. Uh, with its ups and downs and sideways and pains and heartaches and uh, and successes, um, so those three areas all shade and just give me a different way of seeing life, my own unique way of seeing life, seeing truth, and seeing what I think is the nature of life, the nature of others, and the nature of God until I get to this point in life and uh, those are so far below the surface that they just feel like reality to me. They just feel like truth to me. And if I can't begin to see them for anew for what they are and realize where they come from, then they shade and color everything that I see and, uh, and leave me unable to have a fresh and new experience. They visit my past upon my present, and they influence my ability to just see things for what they are. Uh, so let's take a look at them. The first one, genetic, uh, forming in the womb. You know, I think it's so great. We, uh, we did a study up here. And this is probably, I think, for me anyway, this is probably one of the lowest um, or least impactful of these three areas. But, it's, uh, but it's, it's good to consider and worth considering. So, you know, we did a study of the Enneagram. Nina and Baron led us through a study of the Enneagram. And uh, I'm a type 9. Do we have type 9s in here? Yeah, good, good. See, these are the spiritual people because they're like me. You know, I relate to this. This is, this is the way I experience life. So, Polly, William, and Doug, you know, I understand the best. I value the best. I, you know, they're the most like me. And so they appear to be, to me, the ones that are doing life the most correctly because they're chasing it in the same way I do. This is the danger, you know, of, of, uh, of being, of seeing life through these lenses and not realizing them for what they are. But the beauty of, uh, you know, the Enneagram study that we did is that not only do you get to identify your strength, your type, you're nine, you're eight, you're whatever number you are, but also the shadow side of that, the downside of that, and you get to see all the other numbers, all the other people, how they experience life, how they do life, what their thought process is as they come to it. The more I'm exposed to all of that, the more I see all of that, uh, you know, the, the more well-rounded I am. Uh, the other one is um, Myers-Briggs test. Has anyone, have you guys taken the Myers-Briggs test? You know what that is? Okay. I'm an INTJ. I'm an introvert. I'm intuitive. I'm thinking and I'm judging. Uh, you know, this, you know, well, let's see. Yeah. Introvert. We know the difference between introvert and extrovert. Second one is sensing versus intuition. And this represents the method by which someone perceives information. Sensing means that a person mainly believes information that he or she, she receives directly from the external world. Intuition means that the person believes mainly what information he or she receives from the internal or imaginative world. 
I'm the internal or imaginative world. That's the way I experience and see life. That's where I value input. I value input from within more than from without. The third one, thinking or feeling, represents how a person processes information. Thinking means that a person makes a decision mainly through logic. Feeling means that, as a rule, the person makes a decision based on emotion or what they find, uh, feel they should do. And then the last one is judging versus perceiving. is just kind of what I do with that information. Do I plan my life and live it out according to the plan, or do I roll with the flow? Because I am constructed in a certain way, it's very easy for me to see life through that lens, see that as the ultimate way, the true way, the best way to do life. Do life as a thinking, planning, intuitive, valuing the information from within kind of person, valuing logic over emotion. Once again, if I'm not careful, not only do I pass judgment on others based on how I experience life, but I also, I think that, you know, if I were to describe the nature of God, he'd probably end up being an INTJ because that's what I am. You know, at my core, that's my reality. That's my truth. That's how I live life. That's how I view life. That's how I experience life. That's what I bring to life, you know, and it feels like truth and it feels accurate. And so, naturally, it's going to be the nature of my God. Um, so, you know, like I say, these are, I, I bring these, to, you know, to the table just so that we begin to understand, the better I understand me, the better I understand my tendencies, my character makeup, my nature, uh, where these thoughts are coming from, the better able I am not to insist that everyone experience life the same way I do or play at life the same way I do. Um, all right. Let's get on into the uh, more the nitty-gritty. The, uh, the second one, the, uh, the voices from the first six years of life. Um, Richard Rohr calls this the loyal soldier. You know, it is the voice of authority from my childhood, the voice of authority from the first six years of life, uh, the voice of parents, the voice of teachers, um, the voice of any authority figure gets embedded into me. Do this, don't do that. Act this way, don't act that way. If you want success in life, you chase it this way, you don't chase it this way. All of it is good, bad, right, wrong, very dualistic, um, great for social order, great for getting along with others, rules to live by, not uh, not so much uh, a lot of grace in there or anything else. They're just rules to live by. This, for me, is what I think most of us experience as the voice of God. This is the voice coming from deep within. You know, it's conscience. Uh, it is what I would identify as my conscience. Uh, you know, and like I say, Richard Rohr calls it the loyal soldier. It is the voice coming from deep within saying, you shouldn't have done that. You know, you're in trouble now. You know, you're not playing at this right. You're not doing this right. You know, you know better than that. It is, it's that voice that keeps me in my lane. I mean, I'm going to read something uh, that Richard Rohr, this is a little, little treatise he wrote on uh, the loyal soldier. During childhood, we developed an internal loyal soldier. 
largely from our parents' early warnings, whose mission it was to keep us safe. Our loyal soldier created and deployed whatever strategies were necessary to assure our social, psychological, and physical survival. The voices of the loyal soldier are pre-rational, immediate, deep, constant, and unconscious, and they feel like absolute right and wrong. They become for us the very voice of God, resulting in our distorted, punitive images of God. These voices determine what we value and what we disvalue. They are usually shame or guilt-based and very good for social order and control, which are our first half-of-life concerns. There is a deeper voice of God, which you must learn to hear and obey in the second half of life. It will sound like the voice of risk, of trust, of surrender, of soul, of common sense, of destiny, of love, of an intimate stranger, of your deepest self. You need to discriminate the voices of the loyal soldier from the voice of the Holy Spirit. God never leads by guilt or shame. God never leads by guilt or shame. I have had to come back and read that ten times and question whether or not I'm there. I don't think I am. I think Richard's a little bit further down the spiritual path than I am. You know, to me, when I do something that I know I shouldn't, something mean-spirited, something hurtful, something wrong, you know, immediately, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, why did I say that? Why did I do that? You know, and, and I attribute that to the voice of God. But he's saying God never leads by guilt or shame. I want you to take that one home and think about that this week. Where do you land on that? Does God lead by guilt or shame or not? And here's what Richard goes on to say. The deeper faith journey begins when you start to listen and follow God's inner voice and not just shame-based early conditioning. God leads by loving the soul at ever deeper levels, not by shaming at superficial levels. Beautiful. Um, you know what? I wrote down some examples. This is what, uh, this is what my loyal soldier sounds like. Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. If something is worth doing, it's worth doing well. And the deeper version of that is, if you're not willing to put forth some real effort into it, then it's best if you just don't do it at all. Do you hear the shame and guilt built into that one? You know, that's, that's that loyal soldier, that early childhood. Prepare for the future. Be frugal. Save money. Treat others the way you want to be treated. That's a good one. That one's based in the uh, golden rule. It's important to have a good reputation. Your word is your bond. And being on time is very important. As a matter of fact, it's not enough just to be on time. You need to be 10 minutes early. Because if you're late, that's disvaluing other people's time. It's disrespectful. You hear the guilt? You hear the... The, that loyal soldier in there, you know, a kick along with the message, you know. Um, 
that's probably the reason I'm the one up here on Sunday morning, you know, trying to hustle and push everybody into the room to get started and uh, and make this happen, you know, because for me that was built in. And I'm, I'm pretty sure there's not a verse, I've looked, there's not a verse that I can find in the Bible that says that timeliness is next to godliness. And yet for me, you know, it, it feels that way. I, it feels disrespectful. It feels mean-spirited if we're not, if I'm not timely. And so, you know, it's just... This is a shading, just a, you know, a lens, something that I see life through, and if I'm not careful, I experience it as the voice of God. I'll, I'll tell you another one. Uh, tell me if you recognize these lyrics to a song. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Come on, what is it? Thank you very much. Sound of music, absolutely. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. Ah, that's not part of your reality? You know, that is, it's so embedded in me. And that's quid pro quo. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. You know, that's my loyal soldier, that's my parents, that's everything. And, you know... We wonder why it is that it's so hard for us to experience God's grace, unmerited grace, and really believe that he sees us through the eyes of unmerited grace. We, we, we don't understand unconditional love. We don't understand how he can love us unconditionally. And we wonder why that is. And it's because we were raised on the sound of music. <laughs> You know, nothing comes from nothing. I'm raised in a world. And you know what? This, this, All of this, all of the loyal soldier, you know, they're great ways to go through life. They're critical to having a good life. You know, they're great for social order. They're great for relationships. They're not so great for um, determining that it's the only truth or only way to do life, and there's certainly not things that I can overlay onto God. As soon as I overlay nothing comes from nothing onto my image of God, which is exactly where I'm going to go with this stuff that's embedded so deeply within me, as soon as I overlay that onto Him, I lose the ability to experience Him as He truly is. I lose the ability to accept unconditional grace, unmerited grace, and unconditional love. Um, okay, so that's, that's childhood training. That's loyal soldier. You know, that's, uh, that's years one through six. Those are the lenses and the voices that, that that produces in my life. The last one, the woundings and successes. This, I think, is one of the most, uh, can be one of the most damaging, uh, the most difficult one of the ones that really make it hard for me to enter into relationship uh, with a clear vision, with a clear view of relationship. It's hard for me to enter into relationship without the past influencing how I view the relationship. Every time I get wounded in life, every time I was wounded in life, um, I learned a lesson from it. You know, whether I wanted to or not, you know, when I get hurt, I remember the experience. I remember I don't want to go through it again. I remember how bad it hurts. And I start deciding what I need to do to make sure I don't get hurt that way in the future. And 
if I don't really recognize this for what it is, then in all of my future relationships, I enter into them with that in place, knowing that I don't want to get hurt again, and so I want to make sure that I take the appropriate steps to not get hurt, and that previous experience limits my ability to enter into a new and healthy relationship with a person without visiting my past upon them. When I was about five or six years old, um, I had an experience, and this experience lasted maybe 30 minutes uh, when I was five or six years old. But it was an experience with an authority figure that was trying to teach me a, uh, a lesson about life, not to steal. And it became so overhanded um, and so aggressive in its attempt to teach me that lesson as a five- or six-year-old that it, uh, it made me feel unsafe. It made me feel like my home was not a safe place to be. It made me feel like I could not trust the people who were entrusted with my safety and security, uh, just in the way this one event was handled. I went through all of life knowing that I still held a resentment uh, about that 30 minutes uh, at age five or six, but I had no idea of the further the further impact that it was having on my experience of life. You see, I went through all of life uh, with an extreme distrust of authority figures. I went through life uh, not believing that any authority figure had my best interest at heart, uh, cared about me, was safe for me to be around, uh, wanted the best for me. Yeah, I believed none of that with an authority figure. And all of that came from that one event, uh, I think, at age five or six um, that had such a huge impact on me. And it probably wasn't until about 10 years ago that I began to focus on this, recognize it for what it was, and recognize the current impact that it was having on my life. But, um, you know, by that time all I could do was, was seek to heal it. And, uh, you know, and, and it's difficult. I still to this day, even though I've done so much work on it and, and so much attempt to heal it, uh, it is, you know, I would tell you just a shadow of what it used to be. It is not nearly, you know, as deep or as strong or as hurtful as it used to be. But it still influences, you know, an authority figure, a boss, anyone tells me to do something and... You know, I, I react immediately. You know, within, you know, I, I start to resist immediately. And, uh, you know, and it just it comes from that early experience in life. So, you know, what's the, uh, what's the path here? What's the point here? Uh, is, there, is there really something that I need to do with this, something that I should do with this? You know, is this spiritual in nature? Um, I think that... You know, as we look at how all of these things shade and shape our life and our experience, if I want a clean relationship with life, if I want a clean and unfiltered relationship with myself, if I want a clean and new experience and unfiltered relationship with others and with God, then I've got to recognize these voices and these filters for what they are, see that they exist, and then be willing to do something about them. So here's, um, here's what uh, 
what I think the path is. The first thing that I have to do, I have to see and recognize these things for what they are. This voice of the loyal soldier, this voice of the past, these, this, this internal guidance, this sense of conscience uh, that's coming up from within, you know, that is so typically just the voice of my parents and my early conditioning. Uh, this is, you know, this is good guidance, like I say, but it's not spiritual. If I'm not aware of that, if I'm not seeing that for what it is, if I am not uh, putting it in the place where it belongs, then I really am attributing this to the voice of God. And this is a punitive voice. It's a shame-based voice. It's a guilty voice. It's a voice that's saying, you're bad, you shouldn't be doing this. And, you know, if I make this the voice of God, then... My God becomes shame-based, guilt-ridden, and uh, mean-spirited. And it's always a voice that's telling me what I'm doing wrong instead of what I'm doing right. Um, so I need to, I need to see it and, and recognize it for what it is. Romans 12.2 says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what is God's will for you. That's what is, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You know, one of the things that I've had to realize is that this uh, brain that I've been gifted with is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But it's a computer. And that's all it is. It's just a computer. And I have spent a lifetime programming this computer. I spent a lot of years in addiction, and in all those years, I spent a lot of time programming this computer to help me justify my behavior and help me stay in my addiction. I needed to. I needed it to help me because at a very deep level, I knew what I was doing was not the best thing or the right thing or a good thing, and so I needed a way to make it okay. I needed a way to justify it, rationalize it, and make it okay. So I taught the computer you know, little sayings like, it's my life and nobody else's. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. And I programmed these in over and over and over until they took. I taught it to have a martyr-like complex. You know, life's not fair, people's not fair, God's not fair, nothing's fair. You know, because in a state of martyrdom, you know, it's very easy for me to just excuse myself and go do whatever it is that I want to do. And... As I programmed this computer over the years to continue to spit out that information and to tell me those things, uh, I began to believe it. It began, began to become truth. It was coming from within the house. Uh, the message was coming from within my subconscious house. And so it sounded like truth. Um, one of the most beautiful things that I learned in recovery is that I have the ability and the responsibility to challenge and question everything that's coming out of the computer. Uh, I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to follow it around like a little puppy dog and believe everything it tells me. I have the right to look at it, challenge it, question it. And when I recognize that what it's telling me is unhealthy, I need to work on reprogramming it. I need to work on feeding it new programs. Um, I have the ability to do that. I have the right to do that. And if I want a happy life, I'm going to have to do that. So I need to recognize this is a computer. 
Uh, it's programmable. It needs to be challenged. It needs to be questioned. It needs to be updated uh, with new information. And it's up to me to take that upon myself to do so because otherwise I'm living at its mercy. I'm a slave to it. The next one is heal them. Uh, if I want to be free of some of these filters, uh, some of these voices, then not only do I need to recognize that they exist, but I need to take time to heal them. I need to work on them. Um, you know, that wounding that I experienced at age five or six, I've done EMDR therapy. I've gone to a therapist. I have worked with my sponsor. I have worked a fourth step. I have prayed about it. I have given it to God. I have chased it in any number of different ways. And every time I spend a little time on it, the impact that it has on me lessens, okay? It gets lighter and lighter and lighter. I can't tell you that it's gone. I don't know that it will ever be gone but with every bit of attention that I give it, every bit of healing that I seek to visit upon it, uh, it gets easier to deal with. I tend to recognize it more quickly. I don't let it influence my behavior nearly as much as I used to. Uh, I am more free from its control. And so it's critical that I spend time recognizing where these voices come from, where these lenses come from, where the woundings are, and take the time to work on them and try to heal them so that I am not visiting my past upon my present. So I'm not destroying my present with my past. Um, and the last one is this, accept and extend grace. Um, kind of a recurring theme, I think, in a lot of my messages, but I think it's pretty much the answer to everything, uh, is to accept the fact that God loves me just as I am. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the fact that God loves us, and, uh, you know, probably everybody in here agrees that that's the truth. But do I believe that God loves me no matter where I'm at or what I'm doing? Do I believe that God loves me when I am rebelling as well as when I'm chasing? Do I believe that he loves me when I'm failing as well as when I'm succeeding? You know, do I really believe that his love never changes? Do I believe in unmerited grace? Do I believe in unconditional love? Or is the loyal soldier still in charge of my relationship with God? Do I still believe that it's quid pro quo, that it's merit-based, that if I separate myself from him, it changes the way he sees me? There's a voice, uh, voice. There's a verse in Matthew 7. If your child asks for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? If he asks for fish, do you scare him with a live snake on a plate? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think the God who conceived you in love will be even better? Kind of hard to read. Um, you know, and I, I hate the fact that this talks about, you know, that we're bad. Uh, you know what? We're human. We, uh, we are not perfect. You know, we don't do everything well. That person, you know, that was trying to uh, influence my life when I was five or six years old meant well and did it poorly. Uh, 
what they were seeking to do had more of a downside than an upside. But they meant well. Um, I believe that. And that's just kind of the way... That's kind of the way we do life. We try to do it to the best of our ability. We try to do it in a way that we think is right. We try to do it in a way that we think is helpful for the most part. And, you know, often it succeeds. Sometimes it does not. Um, So can I see that God loves me when I am succeeding as well as when I'm failing? Do I really believe that his love never changes, that he always sees me with the same grace and compassion and forgiveness and love regardless of where I'm at? Um, I've got to find my way to that place. And I'll tell you the truth. I don't know how this is going to sound to you, but um, I think that God sees us pretty much as five-year-old children, you know, regardless of what age we're at. We're running around pompously talking about truth, pompously talking about the nature of God, pompously talking about reality, telling others what they should believe or shouldn't believe, how they should live or shouldn't live. And it's a joke. I mean, you know, we we have such a small vision of the world of truth and of reality, and yet we want to believe that what we believe to be true is true for everyone, and we try to tell everyone else how they should live based on what's true for us. Uh, I think God is always just looking down at us and smiling and saying, you're so cute. You know, you have such a good heart. Oh, my gosh, but please stop. You know, please let it go. You know, because that's what we are. We're, we're, seeking, we're seekers of the truth. We're seeking to understand. We want to know God. We want to experience Him well and correctly. And we're trying to tell others, you know, what our vision of that truth is at this point. Um, and it is cute, you know. But, um, but anyway, I, that's just, that's kind of, I, I think that's how He views us. And being seen as such, it means that... You know, when we're messing up, when we're misbehaving, I mean, how many of us would cut off our kids, you know, because they misbehaved? You know, how many of us quit speaking to our children because they don't do something correctly? Um, You know, none of us would do that. So how much more does God look at us and understand and laugh and love us and, uh, and just appreciate everything that we're going through and everything that we're experiencing down here? I want to finish with the scripture. Uh... Part of it is in your bulletin. It's from Romans 8. I'm going to read a little bit more than what's uh, in your bulletin, and we'll close with this. Uh, It's titled, the paragraph in, in the Bible is titled, Nothing Can Separate Us from God's Love. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity 
or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what? I'm not perfect. I'll never be perfect. My approach to life, especially as uh, and as it's outlined in this last little piece that I talked about of accept uh, and extend grace, kind of sounds like this. Cut yourself some slack and then extend that slack to others. You know, I think we're called on to accept God's unmerited grace, God's forgiveness, God's, God's unconditional love. Our journey is to learn to open our arms to that, to, to accept that gratefully, and then more importantly, to extend it out to the people that we're in relationship with, to treat them the same way, to give them forgiveness when they fail, to give them unmerited grace, to give them unconditional love. And as I learn to accept this better from God, I'm better able to extend it to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you love us. Thank you for this journey called life. Help us to, uh, to examine it, to search through it, to see what's working and see what's not working, to heal the wounds, and to seek to every day live in your grace. Accept it, um, share it, give it away, and be appreciative for how you love us regardless of where we're at or what's happening in our lives at this time. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for all you do for us. And thank you for your presence every day as we walk through our life. And we thank you and love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.